You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. This series we're in, Growing in the Likeness of Christ, which is what all followers of Jesus Christ should be doing. If you are a follower of Jesus, then growing is a very natural thing to do. Taking that next step. Sometimes we have some steps we take back, but uh, the true follower of Christ will, will be convicted about that, will kind of come to a place where they realize, wait, that was, that's not the way I need to be going. And we, we, we straighten the course a little bit. Sometimes it's through a message. It's through an experience with Christ. It's through our devotions or a song. It could be a lot of things that help us to get our lives uh, to a place where we are growing again. But we're focusing on growing in the likeness of Christ. We're using uh, the sweet gospel of Mark, which is a tremendous gospel. And we've got 16 chapters and 16 messages. We've been going through each chapter, identifying a place that we can talk about Jesus, what he did for us, what he taught us in that passage. He's teaching us so very much. So again today, Mark chapter 9, growing in the likeness of Christ. In Mark 9, there is something that takes place on a mountain. So I did a little research this week. And in 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary reached the top of Mount Everest, the first person to ever conquer the highest mountain in the world. They got up there to the top, spent about 15 minutes, that's all. After about 15 minutes, mountaintop experiences, by the way, don't last very long. They said, been there, done that, all the work of a lifetime, and basically only stayed up there for about 15 minutes. I wonder why we have this thing about climbing mountains. Arkansas is famous for its mountains. In fact, uh, I was talking to Diana Russo before the service here in Vince last week for Labor Day. Went up to Mount Magazine, Mount Nebo. They love to go to um, Mount Pettigene. That's their favorite mountain. We've got mountains and hot springs, right? There's a lot of ways to get up to the top of a mountain. In fact, some of the wonderful experiences I've had uh, in the city of Hot Springs, getting, you know, just... Especially when I first came to the city, I spent a lot of time on the top of West Mountain overlooking the city. We seem to love to look at pictures of mountainscapes. They are places of mystery. We enjoy them. There's something about the beauty of a mountaintop experience. But you know what I found out is it's really the same in Scripture. Because in God's Word, mountains are often reported as places of powerful personal encounters with God, right in the scriptures. And finally, we see some examples. Uh, Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham took his son Isaac to the top of Mount, uh, the mountain there. And as he took his son to the top of Mount Moriah, uh, he was going to, in obedience, sacrifice his son. But God's voice was heard, held back his hand, his arm against his son. And uh, he turned and saw his substitute for, uh, was a ram just, just not far away, caught, the Bible says, in a thicket. And that ram became the substitute, and it's a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us when he offered his son Jesus to replace our sins on that cross. We should have been crucified, but Jesus took our place. All of that happened on a mountaintop. That's quite the experience, a real mountaintop experience for sure. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai. There he was given the Ten Commandments. 
And it's so significant was his mountaintop experience that in Exodus chapter 34, it was reported that his face was so radiant that the glory of the presence of God was all over Moses. And there was a brightness about him that people could not even look upon. It's a tremendous uh, account of that mountaintop experience that Moses had on Mount Sinai. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah, he on the top of Mount Carmel, uh, called down a fiery victory for God when they defeated 450 prophets of Baal. And what an amazing story that was. Now, there are many, many others Many more mountaintop experiences in the Bible. You're probably thinking of some right now. Another one that I can mention. There's several others that we could talk about. But the picture here in Scripture of meeting God on a mountaintop is so common in Scripture that today we actually refer to those, to our own experiences that are really just unbelievable as mountaintop experiences. We often would say, yeah, man, I went to so-and-so. Went, uh, what was your best What was your mountaintop experience on vacation this year? We might use that phrase as a way to describe something that was just dramatic or incredible. And so that really has come to describe any dramatic, personal, mountaintop experience with God. So the question this morning that we're going to try to answer is this over a period of a few minutes here is, have you ever had a mountaintop experience? Something that brings such an amazing flow, joy, peace. It it eclipses any type of other experience maybe that you've had. But with that comes danger. Because in our world today, there are people who are prompting and manipulating and promoting and manufacturing these mountaintop experiences. Many people are told if they'll come to this place or that place that God will do some dramatic things in their lives. If you just get to this place, it's a guarantee You will have a mountaintop experience, some kind of dramatic personal encounter with God. With that comes a lot of emotionalism. People begin to think that their experiences are, uh, you know, just the norm for the Christian life. And these are supposed to happen all the time. That we're supposed to live our Christian life at some sort of high RPM. Some sort of of a always consistent, mega, emotional high. And if we're not experiencing that, we need to go somewhere else and try some other church or our church isn't real or we haven't really experienced Christ. And people begin to think that if you haven't had the same spiritual experience that they have had, that maybe you just don't love God as much as they do. And what that does is create a sense of spiritual elitism in in, in someone and they begin to kind of be critical of someone who hasn't experienced what they have experienced. And if they could only just, you know get to the place they could have the thing, you know, the thing that you've experienced. Or, and so that becomes a problem, and it's very dangerous. So my goal this morning is to try to give you a definition of what a genuine mountaintop experience is. Because I do believe that God periodically reveals His power and His presence in dramatic ways in our life. You guys, are, you're ahead of me up there. All right. Calm down a little bit. All right. Thank you. All right. And uh, I've got it. But I do have a definition for you. Here you go, bro. You're on. All right. The definition of a biblical mountaintop experience is a temporary. Here's just our definition for the sermon. Just to lay a foundation. It's a temporary, uncommon encounter with God that is meant to give us a fresh 
awareness of his reality and his nearness. You know, we sang a moment ago uh, the worship song, Show Us Your Glory. And there was a, an ask in that. God, we want to see a special manifestation of your power and your presence in this place. And so I want to give you that definition today. I want to try to explain that to you, what a mountaintop experience is. Now, a biblical mountaintop experience will always include three things. Always. Number one, it will always include my mind. I learn something new about God and who he is. It'll always include that. So the gospels are all about who Jesus is. And then my emotions. I do feel something when I have these experiences. And that's okay. Emotions are a part of it. I feel something. I'm overcome with a a unique or greater awareness of the reality of God. And then it always involves my will. It's never just my mind and my emotions without my will because every mountaintop experience will include some action. I'm going to do something about what I've learned. I'm going to do something different than what I've been doing. I will be different. Now that's somewhat of a framework for a biblical encounter with God. Now remember this, as people report these encounters, that not all that glitters is gold. And because of that, we want to be very careful. There's got to be some way to answer the question, was that a real mountaintop experience? And so we go to the passage of Scripture. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples had this mountaintop experience, which provides, I believe, a good criteria for evaluating our own account, our own encounters with God, as well as encounters that we hear reported by other people. And so let's look at this illustration, and we've got a couple of goals. First of all, I'm praying that God will give us more discernment. Discernment to understand whether or not someone, we are having a, a, a real mountaintop experience or not. But secondly, some insight onto how we can experience this. Some insight from God's Word as to how we too can see and experience the glory of God in a greater way. And so I'm going to do that by giving you four things. And these four things are in the text. You know you're having a mountaintop experience when? Number one, when the glory of Christ is revealed. When God's glory is revealed. Mark chapter 9, verse 1, he says to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. With power. Now, just a little context here as we look at Mark chapter number 9. Because most of what Mark is giving us is is not in in chronology. In other words, Mark is sharing with us things as Peter shares them with him. And not necessarily in the order in which they happen. But here we have some chronology here. Because we go back to Mark chapter 8 as we studied a couple of weeks ago where Jesus said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, you know, some say this and some say that and and they give their answers and then Jesus looks at them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was the right answer. That was the number one answer. Ding, 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 ding. And Christian ministry has always, Christ's ministry has always been divided into, those, into two sections. That first section being who God is. Who he is. Every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
are proving who God is. That was the purpose of Jesus' ministry, to come and reveal himself and to prove that he was God. But secondly, it was all about the cross. In every gospel, we see a picture of the cross. And throughout all of the gospels, it was Jesus teaching his disciples. As we read in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, he began to teach them. He was teaching them every opportunity he had. He was teaching them that the Son of Man was going to suffer many things. He was going to be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. But after the third day, he would rise again. He was teaching them these things. And so we come to verse number 2 and we see here that after six days, six days of teaching, six days of hanging out with Jesus... When I read things like this, I I just, it's so awesome to imagine what it would have been like to be in that moment for six days. And Jesus is taking the time to answer questions and and to teach his disciples these things. Who he is and what he came to do. He's Jesus, the son of God. And he's going to be the sacrificial lamb of God. He's who they've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. Wow, powerful. So we come to Mark chapter 9, verse 2, where it says, After six days he took with him Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples. Just these three. In fact, it says he led them up to a high mountain. doesn't tell us which mountain it is. And by the way, there's no necessary significance in knowing the exact mountain. That would be, to me, somewhat of a waste of study time to try to figure that one out. Because I don't think it changes the story at all. He just says he went up to a high mountain and he was alone with them all by themselves and he was transfigured before them. (laughs) No doubt this would be the greatest mountaintop experience of all time. It's never one that was ever like this. That word transfigured, that word means, literally means metamorphosis. Literally. Changed into another form. The glory of the second person of the Trinity is being revealed all of a sudden. The glory of Christ is revealed on this mountaintop experience. It's interesting to note in Luke's account that it says that Jesus invited them up to this mountain where he would be transfigured. But in Luke it says that he brought them up to a high mountain to pray. To pray. And to illustrate this so it really gets across to us what I'm trying to take a moment to teach is we draw from Luke's account that the very first thing they did was pray. And sometimes I wonder if we look at that as just, well, so what? Let's get to the good stuff. Boring old prayer. You know the thing that it's hard to get anybody to come to, a prayer meeting. Something that just seems to be the hardest thing to do in the Christian life. And yet... Luke's account tells us that the initial purpose was to go up to the mountain and pray. Now, I realize a lot more happened. A lot more happened. And that's what we're talking about is the lot more that happened. But the initial thing was to pray. And let me say this. Mountaintop experiences often emerge from the regular spiritual disciplines of our lives The regular spiritual disciplines. From that, yes, God wants to do more. But it always begins. Prayer. In other words, don't expect God to show up in dramatic ways before you if you don't show up in a faithful, consistent way before him. Sometimes I think we're waiting for that moment to happen. 
but we're not living consistently before him, walking with him every day, reading our Bibles, praying, seeking his face, praying and, 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 and drawing near to Christ. Mark tries to explain this in verse number three. He begins to describe what this would have looked like. He says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Another translation I read actually said, as no launderer could bleach them. So if you're in the laundry business, man, you're in the Bible right here. Your profession is mentioned in God's word that nobody, no laundry person could, could have produced this brightness that Mark saw. No one could have done this. It seems that in scripture many times the glory of God is described with some incredible bright light. In Revelation chapter number 1, verse 16, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining, but get this, in full strength. In Revelation 19, 12, it says that his eyes were like a flame of fire, describing the glory of God. Helps us to understand a little bit more what Mark was trying to say to us in verse number 3. And his clothes became radiant. Can you imagine with me for just a moment how the disciples must have felt to see him in all of his glory as the veil of his humanity fell away and they experienced the, the radiant glory of Jesus Christ personally? And so the first characteristic of someone who has had a mountaintop experience is this. Even today, the glory of Christ is revealed. Now, what's interesting is that sometimes when the glory of, when, when someone is expressing the fact that they've had some sort of experience with God, that when it turns internal, they begin to brag about it. It becomes more about them and what they did. And You see, when you experience the glory of Christ, the focus is not on you, it's always on Him. When we come down off the mountaintop experience, we don't feel big, we feel small. And we'll see that as we begin to study this passage, when you're so overcome with the reality of the greatness of God, it changes you. It's so consuming, it's so overwhelming, it's not about you, it's all about Him. Give you an example of one of those mountaintop experiences from uh, a, a preacher, a pastor of over a hundred years ago by the name of D.L. Moody. And a lot, many of you have heard of that name at some point or another. R.A. Torrey, who was the pastor of the Moody Church right after Moody was no longer pastor of that church, wrote a little pamphlet, which I would encourage everyone to read because it's such an easy read. It's just entitled, Why God Used D.L. Moody. It's a great little book. It take, I think it's Seven reasons why God used D.L. Moody. Tory wrote this little pamphlet. And he said this about the seventh thing. The seventh thing was the secret of why God used D.L. Moody is this. He had a very definite endowment with the power from on high. A very clear and definite experience with the Holy Ghost. In his early days, he was a great hustler. He had a tremendous desire to do something, but he had no real power. He worked very largely in the energy of the flesh. And there were two humble free Methodist women who used to come over to his meetings in the YMCA. One was Auntie Cook and the other was Mrs. Snow. These two women would come to Mr. Moody at the close of the meetings and say, We are praying for you. 
Finally, Mr. Moody became somewhat disturbed and said to them one night, Why are you praying for me? Why don't you pray for the unsaved? And they replied, Well, because we're praying that you may get the power. Mr. Moody did not know what that meant, but he got to thinking about it and then went to these women and said, I wish you would tell me what you mean. And they told him about the power of the Holy Ghost. Then he asked that he might pray with them and not merely they pray for him. Auntie Cook once told me of an intense fervor with which Mr. Moody prayed on that occasion. She told me in words that I scarcely dare repeat, though I have never forgotten them. He not only prayed with them, but he also prayed alone. Not long after that, one day he went to England. He was walking up Wall Street in New York. Moody very seldom told this, and I almost hesitate to tell it myself. But in the midst of the hustle and bustle of that city, his prayer was answered. The power of God fell upon him so that he walked up to the street that he was on, and he had to hurry himself off into a house of a friend and asked that he might have a room by himself in that room. He stayed alone for hours and the Holy Ghost came upon him, filling his soul with such joy that he, that at last he had to ask God to withhold his hand lest he die on that very spot from joy. Wow. What a mountaintop experience as the glory of Christ was revealed. Have you had a mountaintop experience? Is God bringing something to mind right now? If he is, I can assure you, in that story will be the glory of Christ being revealed. Number two, the second way that you know you've had a mountaintop experience is when the fear of Christ is revered. The fear of Christ, rather, is renewed. Excuse me, renewed. In verse number four of Mark chapter nine, it says, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Wow, that's that's another amazing, I think, uh, narrative in this story is that these two guys show up out of nowhere. I'm I'm almost imagining Peter, James, and John on the mountain. They they blink their eyes and they open them and all of a sudden, here's Elijah and Moses. And they're having a conversation with Jesus. We don't know how long that conversation was, but we do know that Peter says something very odd next. The Bible says that Peter said, Rabbi. It's good to be here. That's the biggest understatement I think I've ever read in Scripture. I'd be about like going to the North Pole in a pair of Bermuda shorts and saying, you know, it's kind of cold up here. I mean, you know, it's kind of one of those weird statements that Peter often made, it seems. He kind of put his foot in his mouth. He didn't know what else to say. He's kind of like, uh, it's really good to be here, you know. <laughs> He didn't know what else to say, but I think sometimes we can be pretty tough on Peter. But if we see kind of the reason why Peter said that, you got to read the second part of the verse. It makes more sense when Peter then says, let us make three tents or three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In other words, Peter seems to then say, as he kind of comes to himself and he's in the moment, he says, man, it's good to be here. I mean, in fact, it's so good to be here. I don't ever want to leave here. Uh, Why don't we just get some tents and some shelters and just stay here for a very long time? In fact, this had such an impact on Peter's life. He was never the same. He wrote in 2 Peter chapter number 1, verse 16, about that experience again. As he wrote, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty we saw it with our own eyes we did not excuse me next verse 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Next verse, please. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Wow, what a text. Peter again expressing the memories of that incredible mountaintop experience. He says, we were there. We saw the glory of Christ revealed. We need to dispense once and for all with the notion that you have to, that when you have this real personal, genuine encounter with God, that it's some sort of lovely, mushy, feel-good experience because every single time in Scripture that God reveals His glory and power, it seems as if people are on their faces. In fact, if you read the next verse in verse 6, it says, He did not know what to say. Maybe that's why He said something kind of silly like, Hey, it's good to be here. And, Let's build some tents. Yeah, let's, let's stay here for a long time. He didn't really know what to say because he was terrified. My concern is that we're so flippant and so familiar that there's really no fear or reverence for God anymore. It seems as if, and, and again, I'm not being critical of, of the casual Christianity we experience today. I'm all for it. I think it's great that Many things that we've done here at Gospel Light, I mean, every, things that are good things, but that sometimes I think if we're not careful, we, we can slide so far into this flippant, let's have a cup of coffee, let's be late to church, let's, and again, I say this with just heaps of love, we desperately need a fresh move of God's Spirit to create in us a sense of reverence and respect and fear for Him. I guarantee you that will keep us awake in church. Let me define it. Fear is the attitude of heart that seeks a right relationship with the fear source. And the fear source is God. Fear says, I can't afford to be at a wrong place with God. And if we can allow sin in our lives, days and weeks and months and years, long periods of time, and we don't deal with it, then it's evident that we don't have enough fear of God in our lives. Because fear says, I can't go to bed tonight without getting it right. Hebrews 10.31 says it like this, that it's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I, I love to study the fear of God in Scripture because it's so prevalent. It's, it's always there, especially when you drop down to the book of Psalms. Can I give you a few verses? Psalm 19.9 says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Psalm 25 and verse 14 says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. I love that the friendship of God is for those who fear him. We have a reverence for him, a respect for him. Psalm 31 verse 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Psalm 33, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord, that all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 33, verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. I mean, you can see in Scripture, we just took a little moment to to, to give you several verses, how important the fear of God is in the Word of God. It is, the Bible says, often the beginning of what? 
It's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins. You think about those two criminals on the cross. It's an amazing conversation they had. One of the criminals in verse 39 of Luke 23 who was hanged on that cross was railing at Christ on the cross. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Just hurling insults at him. Lost his mind. But the other thief rebuked him and said these words. Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, we deserve it. For we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, bro, he's done nothing wrong. Jesus, hey Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, truly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. He had the fear of God. And that's where wisdom starts. Church, we need an awareness of the holiness of God and his impending assessment of our lives that is coming. That's a good thing. And we need more of that. We, I believe if we had more of that, we would begin to fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And when you have a real, authentic, mountaintop experience, you are consumed with the glory of Christ and you will have a fresh fear of Christ. Now, what are some of the examples of these mountaintop experiences that we, we might have? I think it's relevant for us to maybe take a moment here as we come near the midway part of the message and just take a moment to look at five kinds of mountaintop experiences. First of all, there are key spiritual decisions in our lives, like salvation. For me, I know a lot about that day. Not everybody has to know everything about that day, and I understand that you know to, to put too much emphasis on that can... Can, can create doubt in others that that's some sort of necessity. But for me, it is something that I, I cherish because I do know it was September the 1st, 1978 at 1230 on 516 3rd Street, red carpet. I remember the place, the spot. It was just a very special mountaintop. It was the first one I ever had. And it was pretty amazing. Maybe the day I got baptized or turning points in my life. Mountaintop experiences, key spiritual decisions. Number two, retreats or special events. We just had Teen Revolution or maybe a camp that we attended this summer or a retreat or a family camp or some sort of a convention. Something we went to where we got away from the distractions of life and we got with other people who got away from the distractions of life, right? And we heard someone challenge us from the Word of God and from that retreat, or conference or convention came a mountaintop experience. I have a a Bible in my office that sometimes I refer to when I'm preaching to teenagers as my high school Bible. And it's one that I cherish because in the back of that Bible, I have dozens of dates that I've written down with decisions that I made at camp. And I usually would write down the, you know, the camp speak or maybe the title of the message. And if I would go to the altar and make a decision at camp, I would write that decision down because I knew it was a mountaintop experience off that, at that moment, but I would eventually come down from the mountain like everybody does. Camp ends, conference ends, team revolution ends, and everything gets back to normal. But that decision was a life-changing decision for me. My life was dramatically affected many times in those moments. Number three, a major life crisis or success. I say crisis or success because sometimes it's when you go through hard things 
that you have a mountaintop experience. Uh, on the way out of the first service, we had a wonderful t- service, and one of the men came up to me and said, man, I am in a crisis, and God is doing some amazing things in my life. Thank you for mentioning that. So if you are like him in this building, and you are going through a major crisis, God is still with you. He is there. His glory is being revealed in your life. This is an amazing moment for you. Don't miss the mountaintop experience in the crisis. But can I also say that sometimes they're on They're when you're having a great day, a wonderful day, a wonderful experience in successful times. Wonderful things can happen during those times as well. Number four, I think another way that we can have a mountaintop experience is when God just surprises us. It's like we didn't see it coming, kind of like D.L. Moody, right? Walking down New York City, down the street, and all of a sudden, his prayer was answered. The Holy Ghost came upon him. And he was endued with power from high, goes to a room, gets alone, gets on his face, prays for hours. It came out of nowhere. And sometimes I feel as if those experiences have happened to me, where I just didn't see it, I didn't expect it, it wasn't anything special, it just just sort of happened. Number five, it could be an act of divine judgment, where God shows up and just makes it evident that you need to get your act together. And God's Grace makes us aware of our contemplated actions. And thank God for his grace. By the way, that's God's grace when you become aware of something you're doing wrong. It's just God's goodness that leads us to repentance. Amen? Amen. Boy, this is a, either a convicted crowd or a sleepy crowd or a quiet crowd. I've just come off the mountain. Amen? I'm having the time of my life. This might be the first time the second service is a little bit quieter than the first. But I still love you. Amen? I say all that to say, have you had a mountaintop experience? And maybe has it been in one of those different dynamics? They show up in different ways in different packages. Number three, the third way you know you're having a mountaintop experience is when the word of Christ is revered. Because to revere God's word, to revere it is to respect it and to hold it in high esteem. Well, this is so important because, again, today, it seems as if we're more excited about our new Bible and the fact that it was, hey, hey, it was purple. I got my first purple Bible. This is my dream Bible. I've always wanted a purple one. Or finally got this version. Or finally got that version. Or my Bible costs this much. And we begin to get enamored by things that really have nothing to do with the actual power, which are the words of God, which can come in any shape, form, or fashion. I'm not against purple Bibles at all, believe me. And they are pretty. But sometimes we, we miss really what revering God's word is. And when you have a mountaintop experience, that will always be there. And maybe that's why... Moses and Elijah showed up. Have you ever thought, of, why wasn't it like David or Abraham or some other really incredible Bible character? Well, I think it's important for us to, to know there's some significant things about Moses and Elijah that have to do with God's word. First of all, Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And then Elijah, well, he was considered the greatest prophet that ever lived and, and what they called the Hebrew scriptures was the law and the prophets. Moses wrote the law, and Elijah was the greatest prophet. And so these two men show up 
on the scene, two men who revered God's word. They were very strongly connected to God's word in scripture. And then Mark chapter 9 and verse 7 says this amazing thing, that a cloud overshadowed them. This cloud would have been a reminder of of that pillar of cloud that led them through the wilderness to the promised land. This was a picture of the presence of the glory of God. This cloud. And this cloud overshadowed them. And listen to what came out of the cloud. It was a voice. And here's what the voice said. This is my beloved son. Now listen to him. Listen. Listen to him. Revere what he says. When you come off the mountain, and when you've had a dramatic personal encounter with God, one thing that you will have is a heightened awareness and reverence for God's word. Listen. So often I feel as if we just need to listen. I need to listen. How many times do we hear the words of God in a devotional or in a message or in a Bible study or even last Sunday, the mission of God? It hasn't left me. I'm thinking about it so much. It's changed the way that I've lived this week and I want it to change the way that I live forever. It could it be that God is bringing us together for such a time as this to revere God's word, to listen to God's word? Question, how much power does God, God's word have in your life? How much? I'm going to ask you three very pointed questions to determine that. Question number one, can God's word change your opinion on a subject? Can it? I used to think this, but... Now I think this because of God's word. I used to think this about abortion. But you know what? It doesn't matter what I used to think and what I thought. Here's what God's word says. And I changed my opinion. I used to think this about drunkenness. I used to think this about alcohol and awareness of where I'm at with this thing on alcohol and social drinking. I see it creeping into the churches and creeping into our church even. And I... I sincerely love to take a moment from time to time on these intense subjects, uncomfortable subjects, and at least say, have you considered what God's Word has said? Have you considered some of the warnings in God's Word? I used to believe this about it, but you know, after further contemplation from God's Word, I've changed my opinion. Can God's Word change your opinion on a matter? Can God's Word change your behavior? Can it? I was doing this, I was going along, living my life, doing this, getting divorced. I'm just getting divorced, it's over, I'm just leaving her, I'm going to get on with my life. Then someone comes to you, shows you in God's word that you don't have biblical, any biblical grounds for divorce. And you're like, wow, I don't. Thank you. I'm going to change my opinion about that. I'm going to change my course of action. I don't have biblical grounds, you're right. You know what, I'm going to try to work this thing out, be committed. Can God's word change your behavior? Can God's word overcome human logic in your life? (laughs) Scripture says we should give. Give a portion of our income back to God. And you know what? Logically, that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up financially for me. I mean, if I'm not paying my bills right now, then how do you expect me to give even anything to God? But can God's word overcome what makes sense to you logically? Logically. 
I love Luke chapter 5. We have a great example of that. Jesus shows up to the disciples. They've been fishing all night, right? Look at this. This is awesome. On one occasion, verse 1, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake to center at. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he says to Simon, Hey, Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Listen. Listen to me, Simon. Are you going to listen? Well, God, my opinion is this. We haven't caught anything all night, not one thing. So this is a really dumb, illogical idea, God. Master, we toiled all the night and took nothing, exclamation mark. I just want you to know we haven't caught anything, God, just so you know. But at your word. But God, since you said to, I'll let down the nets. Wow. Doesn't make sense logically, does it? But if God said it, can God, does God's word have that kind of power over your life? Listen to him. Those words, they reverberate in my spirit even this morning as I think about my own life. Do I reverence and respect God's word? No matter what people tell you, you have not had a genuine encounter with God if it has not produced in your heart a greater reverence and respect for God's word. Do you have that? Number four. And finally, you know you've had a mountaintop experience when the world for Christ is revisited. Because the disciples, they wanted it to last, didn't they? Man, let's build a tent. Let's stay up here on this mountain. I mean, fooey on this 15 minutes on the top of Mount Everest and come down, man. Let's stay up here like forever. This is awesome. <laughs> it's good to be here. I don't know what else to say. And I can see that. Because they're pretty cool when you have one and it's awesome and you just want it to last forever. But mountaintop experiences are temporary. Here in this story, the... The visitors vanished. Here in this story, the voice went silent. Here in this story, the cloud was retreated. And life went back to the routine of walking by faith. Look at Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse number 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain coming down because every mountaintop experience inevitably must come to an end the emotion the joy the victory the enthusiasm must always fade into discipline and purposeful obedience as great as these mountaintop experiences are they're not where the christian life is lived It is the day-to-day walking with God. It's day-to-day living by faith and trusting God every moment. You can't live always on the mountain. And when we attempt to do this, when we try to cultivate this, 
from my own experience, I've been guilty of manipulating people in church to make decisions. I've grown a lot. As a younger preacher, man, listen, if folks didn't come, we would say things like, you know, we'll just keep singing and keep going until you get down here. And I remember hearing one preacher say, thank God I never said this. He said, we'll be here an hour until you get down to this altar. And they would just keep going and going and going while the babies in the nursery would cry. And, and, and you know, I, 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 I've been there. I've been there thinking, you know what? Until we get a bunch of people down at the altar, maybe we really haven't had a service. And we manipulate, try to cultivate results. You say, Pastor, that was you? I'm just, you know what? The older I get, the more honest I get. Is that okay? Not that I was lying. I'm just more transparent. I'm just being honest. I'm just being open that we can all be guilty of this. We can feel as if we are better than someone else, that we've got our own, you know, we've got something to do with this. And somehow in the church, we've substituted emotion for spirituality. And the more hype we can get, and the more loud we can get, the more we can run, laugh, or speak in some unknown tongue. And I'm not against any of that. But the more we get emotional and loud and draw attention to ourselves so that we can say, We've had some sort of an experience. Let me tell you something. When you come down off that mountain, you're changed. You're changed forever. I've had some of these mountaintop experiences. I mentioned my first one on September the 1st, 1978. It just happened. It just, I just celebrated my 42nd anniversary. Usually I go to the spot where I was saved. And I stand there for a while and I just, to be honest, I reminisce. I think back to walking down that aisle. I think back to sitting next to Tony Thomas, Brother Riggs preaching, under conviction, Roman Catholic altar boy, just confessed my sins to the priest, about to confess my sins to the high priest. Whew, that was good. I felt something right there. I felt something. Is that okay to feel something? Did we talk about that? Okay. Man. Whew. I've never been the same since September the 1st, 1978. Two years later, I'm in a gymnasium. No, yeah, yeah, I'm in a gymnasium. I'm playing basketball. I used to love basketball. In fact, can I be honest with you? Another transparent moment. I loved basketball more than I loved God. Oh, yeah. It was an idol in my life. No doubt about it. By the way, anything you love more than God is an idol. I used to shoot four, five, six hours a day. One night I was in the gym shooting and I, I came under such serious Holy Ghost conviction as a 15-year-old boy that I fell on my face. And I prayed. I don't know how long. I know it was at least five hours. At least five hours. Because I remember I got home that night so late that my mom was so worried. And I told her, Mom, I can't explain it. But I had an encounter with God tonight. And I decided He is going to be number one. And He's been that way ever since. At age 16, my pastor called me and said, I'm sick. I need you to go preach a revival meeting. I'm like, Pastor Riggs, I've only preached two sermons and they're both 10 minutes long. He said, you better bring both of them because it's two nights. I drove to Dequeen, Arkansas. I'll never forget pulling up to this country church in Dequeen. There's like four deacons sitting in rocking chairs on the church porch. I get out of the car. They say, you must be our visiting evangelist. I'm like, yes, sir, I am. They said, well, great. 
Hope you brought the feet fire tonight. I thought, fire? <laughs> I'm scared half to death. Somehow I squeezed, or rather I preached 25 minutes with that 10-minute sermon. I probably just said the same thing over and over again. But when I gave the invitation Monday night, I saw two people walk down the aisle and trust Christ as their Savior. And I knew it wasn't me. I knew it wasn't. I knew that was the power of God. And I had a mountaintop experience when I realized that this has very little to do with the person speaking and it has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. I remember when my wife got sick and I first started this church and I had a mountaintop experience in a crisis. She was dying. If you were here, you remember she was in the hospital for 29 days. The doctor walked out of the room and said, look, we're probably going to have to amputate her leg. Her colon was in awful shape. She had boils and sores all over her body and they had this big oxygen bag over her leg and she calls me at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm living in a mobile home park. And she says, honey, I need you to come up. I think I'm dying tonight. I had a Mo with me. He was just a little baby. Called my brother Brett. I said, Brett, I'm taking Mo to your house. I got to drop him off. Woke him up. He's crying. I, I didn't do it very kindly or gently. I just basically dropped Mo off, got in my car. Before I got to the hospital, I pulled over the side of the road right in front of Magic Springs on Highway 70, put my fist up in the air to, to God. Yes, I did. And I said, God, I'm so stinking mad at you. Who do you think you are? My wife is a godly woman, and I'm following you and preaching and pastoring at church, and this is, your, this is how you treat me. And I went off on it. And the Holy Spirit of God simply brought me to my knees and said, Son, I love her more than you do. How dare you? Leave it alone. I'm in control, son. And on the side of Highway 70, laid prostrate on the concrete, I gave my wife's health to God. And I went up to that hospital, kneeled next to that bed, had the best night of my life. And ever since then, she's been God's. Her health has been God's. And praise God, she's still sitting on the front row at church at age 55. Somehow, some way, mountaintop experience. I can't explain why we're even here first building was a miracle. I didn't have any money. The banker gave us 69. I don't, don't, don't ask me to explain it. It was crazy. Mountaintop second building. I don't know how we got the Spanish church. That was our church. I, I have no idea. I, I don't know anything about really how to do a lot of things. I just know how to trust God. I don't know how we got these buildings. I'm sure I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but we're still here. And somehow God has just said, in fact, somebody yesterday reminded me very nicely. They said, you do know your church is in a really bad area. I'm like, thank you. Haven't heard that one in a while, but I guess you're right. You know, it is pretty tough. We've never been a rich church. We've never had a lot of money. We've never really attracted a lot of the upper class. It's okay. I just pretty much put you in a category right there. Amen. (laughs) If you thought you were upper class, you just got demoted. You are middle to low class with the rest of us. Amen. Yeah. I'm all, all right. I'm not, I'm just simply saying, church, you can't explain this but God. And I just been on the mountaintop watching God do this. And I come down off the mountain and try to pay the bills. And then I get back on top of the mountain and I say, Lord, we need some more. And I come back down the mountain and I said, and I go back up. That's not enough. We need some help here, God. We, we, that $2,000 for Dixie Jackson, you know, 
I don't know about you, but I, I'm praying for that. I've been praying for it all week. God, give us that 2000 God, give us that 2000 Help somebody to give a dollar, five, ten, fifteen, twenty. Lord, help us to send 2000 to Little Rock so we can bless the state of Arkansas. I don't know how all this happens. I don't know how all it works. I just know God's in control. And every now and then we get a glimpse of his glory. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. But then I come down off the mountain. I just wake up, brush my teeth, go to the office, help people. To be honest, most of my life is pretty much regular. It's really not a big deal. And that's where the Christian life is lived. Just being faithful to Christ because he's always faithful to us. And here's what's interesting. You say, well, I like to have a mountaintop experience like like Peter, James, and John. Well, I got some good news for you. You've got something Peter, James, and John didn't have until Christ ascended to heaven. You know what that is? The Holy Ghost of God. And the Holy Ghost of God has descended upon mankind. And those that trust him as Savior have him in them all the time. You are a walking recipient of the power of Jesus in you through the Holy Spirit. And you can have a mountaintop experience anytime you want to because God is with you. He's with you all the time. So I'm going to ask God to move in this moment. Doesn't mean we have to have people at the altar, although it could mean that we need to have people at the altar. I've I've changed my mindset. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. No manipulation here. The altars are here. They're open. I think it's great when we can come at times and pray. It's not an every week thing, but if you feel like you need to come, it's open. If you need to be saved, we're, we're, we're here. We're here. I think I'm, I'm the only elder here in this service. Got some guys that are sick and not feeling well. So I'm here. I'll be at the altar. If you, oh, Butch, thank you. You'll come and join me in just a minute. Thank you. I see Butch. So Butch and I will be up front. If you need to pray with, if you need someone to pray with you, we'll have a couple of elders here. My wife's on the front row. I've asked her to kind of keep an eye out on things in case a lady needs some prayer. Whatever you need. If you need to just sit in your seat, worship, sing, Great Are You, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. Man, just enjoy the. Let's just have a little mountaintop experience for the next three minutes. Let's let God show us his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I love you. God, I pray that you would work and move. Lord, may we have a fresh awareness of your word, of your power, of your presence. Father, I am so thankful for what you're doing in my life, in my wife's life, in my children, in my church family. I cherish every moment, God. I just pray, God, that, Lord, as we come off off this service and walk out these buildings and get in our cars and some air-conditioned, some not air-conditioned, and we just kind of go to work tomorrow, mundane Mondays, right? Just Monday morning. God, may we walk by faith. May we walk in the Spirit not fulfill the lust of the flesh. May we live Monday and not forget the spiritual high we have on Sundays. God, help us to trust you for greater things. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand together?